0: Hi there, my name is Corey Dunden. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating paediatric occupational therapists, a joint collaboration between Seed Paediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only.
1: With that, let's jump in to today's episode. Hello, Trace and Corey. Welcome to episode 13. How are you?
0: Yeah, good. Hello,
2: Michelle. Hey, Tracey. How are you going? Hi. Great to be here with you. Lucky 13. (laughs) Yes. Lucky for
0: me.
1: (laughs) The last few episodes, we've been talking about um, reflecting on the children we're working with, how they're presenting um, to us really giving thought about following their lead and and um, honouring where they're at at a particular stage of development, particularly that social and emotional piece that we were talking about the last two episodes. Um, and I've been noticing some tension in myself about... The doing of activities um, that where we're really thinking about use of self-trace and, you, you you know, the last few in particular, you've really mentioned that we bring ourselves to it and we're um, f- trying to tune with where they are. At and allowing that to unfold and trusting you know that we 're holding back and and that if we give them some space, then we clinical reason outside of sessions about how they 're presenting and why, but that they may well move on to the next level of development in their own time and i 've had some tension around um, my my own uh, practice really, and that I come to every session with a list of things that I want to do, that we want to get through to help work on sensory discrimination, to help work on posture, to help work on um, relationship and that social emotional piece. So I don't ever come with a list of how um, I'm going to show up, really. I guess I bring myself and I'm trying to hone in on and refine my therapeutic use of self, But that's not at the top of my list of things that I bring into a session. So I wonder if we can really dive into that today. Uh, I know other therapists and I mentor some therapists. We go in with a plan and that plan never has. (laughs) Well, it does have um, mention about affect and, you know, matching. I'm going to have bigger affect. I might have more energy. So we, we do pay attention to that. But at the top might be vestibular activities in rotary, (laughs) you know, things like that. Um, So I wonder, can we just keep moving on to some of the things that you've raised with us in the last two episodes around self and, and being with and attuning to and I don't know, yeah, how does that feel for you, Corey? Defi- I think
0: it's a great idea because so many of the therapists in our clinic and some that you and I help support in their clinical reasoning, it it's there's always this pressure to feel like what's the thing I'm doing in session
1: r- rather than... That will facilitate the change. Yeah,
0: exactly. And just I want this parent to know that I'm doing the work or that I'm mm. I'm there here for purpose and th- and it feels a little less worrying especially when you're in the first few years of treating to feel like you have a bit of a plan and and it there's specific activities that you're working towards something um, because the process of treatment is so complex when you're in, in the moments with that child and family sometimes that you don't always notice the work that you're actually doing. So you don't even actually sometimes recognize what's unfolding, um, which I guess is why we love these discussions, because you you start to refine or your ability to actually notice the minute things that uh, having an impact once you reason it out afterwards. So I think it's a great, and I'm sure there's so many people that are probably having the same battle in their own heads around how much do I do, um, and how much you know, how Am much I do I play yeah, that child, yeah, do this wouldn't. dance. So I'm sure you have thoughts on it too, Tracy. This is probably like your passion, <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, on some level, you know, it is the core passion in a way. I think it's that. Um, that tension it's a visceral experience treating being a therapist is a visceral experience right you bring your whole self to those moments um and you're engaged fully with every child in every session and you're feeling and doing and being with them so it's this this tension and i remember early in my early career Um, really having this really burning, yearning desire to be able to name what was the process going on. And at the same moment, um, you know, in learning how to do this work, there is also the doing of the, the use of the swing or the use of the stairs or the, how do I use the ramp or a blow toy or why is that happening? Um, in a particular session, and so there is so much to learn um, and I think that for me the um, that pressure of the doing of the all of the activities and tasks and uh, therapeutic approaches, whether that be you know learning sensory integration or n- neurodevelopmental treatment and handling techniques or Um, oral respiratory approaches and the sex-swallow-breathe synchrony and all of these different, you know, approaches. And there was so much to learn and so much to master. And what I kept realizing in each session was that it was less about that stuff and more about being present and connecting and really seeing Um, and feeling what is who is this person that I'm with and what is it that is going to help them to move to the next step for them. And, And kind of struggling with that led me really on this journey of trying to articulate some clinical reasoning approaches. And so I've spent a lot of time and a lot of years kind of trying to figure out how to articulate that and putting together these frameworks like the step SI framework, for instance, or the spirit framework that we kind of loosely use as a part of our, our podcast framework here. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. So, so all of that being said, I, I think it's really cool for us to take an episode, you guys to kind of pause from the topics of the spirit framework And to just talk a little bit about about our clinical reasoning and about that journey, because the truth is that, you know, each of us have had a journey of um, coming into the frame of how do I think about my work? How do I think about the approach that I'm taking? How do I think about um, reconciling all that tension so that I can really show up in a way that's meaningful and impactful in each of the sessions that I'm going to, um, you know, and in each of the lives that I'm engaged with. And so I, I kind of think it's cool for us to kind of pause and think about that, because like you said, um, I think the folks who are listening to this podcast, that, that each of them have had that same struggle and they're on that same journey, just like we are. And And so, yeah, like, let's do that. Let's kind of think about it. So when I think about it, I want to, I kind of want to give a couple of frames here. One thought is that, you know, the core of what we come back to very often in this podcast is related back to the work of Dr. Ayers. Now, in the framework of Ayers sensory integration, Dr. Ayers, you know, used this definition of the organization of sensation for use. But if we think about more of a contemporary neuroscience, a very 2022 kind of neuroscience framework, there's a really clear understanding now that all of our brains really only develop and unfold in the context of relationships. So at the cornerstone, a cornerstone within occupational therapy practice, separate from um, sensory integration, is the therapeutic use of self in the context of meaningful engagement and purposeful engagement. So when I think about really the roots of our profession and who we are as, as a profession, as a whole discipline, this idea of connectedness and relatedness is essential to our our work but you know it's also essential in the developmental space of working with children because the nervous system is going to self-organize around capacity when when it's given the chance to be in the presence of another so there are two conditions that are necessary for that neuroplasticity it's the con- the presence of another And it's the presence of opportunity for adaptation. And those are the two kind of necessary conditions. So on some level, you don't have to know all of errors theory. You don't have to know all of NDT. You don't have to know all of development, but you have to stay true to those two things that you're creating these opportunities for just right challenges and adaptive responses and you're present, you're fully, wholly present because the nervous system needs the presence of another in order for those capacities to emerge. And so there's a simplicity and a beauty in that, in that wisdom of the neuroscience. You know what I mean? Mm. I do, but
1: I think, um, I think that I'm a lot of years out of uni, but I think that I think thought the building of rapport with a client was that they would want to do their work more if I was kind of nice to be around and if I was a good cheerleader (laughs) then they would achieve their goals with a nice energetic whatever you know like yeah yeah you're gonna get your goals if I can coach you with a bit of enthusiasm to give you some juice rather than it's really only been in more recent times that I've understood the new, the impact of that neurology that, that I can change and neurology with my own babes, I guess, as they were growing, but with the children that we're working with and and I guess each other Mm -hmm. um, as adults that we can still have capacity to do that. Um. But uh, how can I say this i'm a really relationship you know based kind of therapist because it feels good with me but i don't and I know some of that um, research and the neurobiology but i I still into the doing and I think I don't know whether that's because I'm a doer or because um, when I went through uni that activities use of mm. self was good but it was a vehicle I think to be a cheerleader to coach the other rather than the weight of shifting neurology you know it's an essential part of shifting neurology.
0: I'm having these university flashbacks too, <laughs> just because I know that we, I can distinctly remember lectures on therapeutic use of self, and they would walk you through it and talk about that. Um, but I also really remember it being hammered in that it had to be occupation based and task focused. So that was a huge overarching, um, I guess, principle or value. That was sort of drilled into me when I went through university so I, I wonder if that kind of is partly why we feel really drawn to that and it's I and there's nothing I'm not trying to bag that out either because it's wonderful to have occupational performance in mind it, it makes your therapeutic practice purposeful and have a point to it rather than a drilling or a just working on integrating a sensation that doesn't even now I'm like, that sounds horrendous. <laughs> like it doesn't sound holistic at all. So I guess Tracy, you've helped for me pulling the neurology into the being part of the doing <laughs> well into the, in, that might sound really abstract, but into those minute moments mm-hmm. where I can be with and allow development to unfold in a really purposeful way um, because I've, Thought about exactly how I was going to do that beforehand, but I've also then just let go of that and and, and able to take that in the moment and match that as I guess that's the presence part of it and wholly present. Um, But it's take, I don't know, it takes a lot of guts to be able to be with in the moment because you, um, yeah, you don't always, not always that confident when you first start. You think, oh, gosh, I've got to be doing something. I'm not doing anything. (laughs) So I think it's a really, I don't know, I feel like most people would struggle with the dance that we're talking about, which is why it's great to talk about how we reason these things out and come to a place where we can have more confidence in actual treatment.
2: Absolutely. 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 I think it's interesting because I think most of us who are drawn into these fields, whether it be OT or any of the other kinds of fields that are therapeutic in nature, right? There's this idea of rapport, but it's it's so much deeper than rapport, right? Rapport is um, mm. that trusting... Um, respectful I see you we're going to mutually be engaged in a process here together and I'm going to work really hard to help you feel that I'm on your team and I'm with you and I'm going to help Mm. you to um to feel understood and to to be moved forward but there's something deeper than rapport when we talk about attunement and connection and connectedness and How when um, I'm with you and I see that you're struggling, I don't necessarily have to to shift something right away. I might need to just notice what is that? Where is that struggle coming from? Is that because it's just frustrating for you because you don't quite have the motoric skill for that or because you just don't have the attentional space for that or, or there's something about it that is challenging on a, you know, whatever the, the demand level is happening. Um, and if I just try to fix that for you, that isn't necessarily the thing that you need. What you might need is for me to really notice it or, you know, just making a minor adjustment or, um, try to make a, task adjustment or an environmental adjustment or an attitude adjustment or something like that and so when we think about therapeutic use of self each of us is always on a journey of of learning how to tune into well which one of those things is it because um, if we get that right then we're going to be able to facilitate progress in a different way than if we totally blow that and we didn't get it right um and so there's this kind of mind that's involved in our treatment where we're really super tuning into the qualities of performance in the other that allow us to kind of have like a lens into what is it what is the ease uh, why is that easy for you why is that hard for you why is that um why is this so elusive to you, little person, that you can't quite seem to figure out um, what it is that, that your body could do here or that your um, ideas could do here? And so in that mind sight, what we're doing is we're really super tuning in to a very deep level. And in that, um, we're not making a decision for the other person, but we're... Helping to craft what could be possible, so that that's a lot of work, and it is brave work. I think it's really um, takes a suspending of uh, eagerness, and I think in the last couple of episodes, a couple times, Michelle, you talked about that greediness that we have for like, come on, let's do more, let's have you accomplish this thing, and you know that's a beautiful. Um, goal to facilitate progress. But it's also a lovely thing to realize that sometimes if you just take a breath and allow for the mistakes to happen, for the um, repetition to happen, to or, or whatever is occurring, to just proceed and kind of learn from it together, that there's a lot that happens there. Um, so I... When I'm talking about this, and, you know, we're in in two different countries right now, obviously, always, when we're creating these podcasts. Um, But I'm aware that I'm having kind of a visceral experience explaining it to you. Because I feel so passionate about Mm. helping therapists to come into the wholeness of what they have to offer therapeutically. And yet, it does feel sometimes like... um, Like it's not specific enough, but I think it's because it's this Mm. space of, of, um, individual difference and tuning into that. And so it isn't any one thing. And it's so in that it can be a little bit elusive to explain, but is it, is it, is all of that, are all of those words helping to bring that into a frame that shifts it into something that's a little bit deeper than that general use of rapport as therapeutic self or use of self?
1: I think it does for me, Trace, because I just had a tea when you were talking about that. So I'm certainly feeling, <laughs> <laughs> feeling you know, the, feeling it in my body. I am, and I guess it's a way with which we might evaluate our um, session, because I... Um, Have a um, a few kiddos that I um, have greater capacity to allow them to.
0: You're so hard on yourself, Michelle. (laughs) Sorry, I just (laughs) laughed really loud. Uh, Michelle is a fantastically relational therapist. Just putting that out there, (laughs) Um, and I actually think that's in your inherent nature, um, in a way, and so. I think you undervalue the the. I think because it's so um, in, in innate for you, or it's part of who you are, that you don't necessarily. I mean, I guess that's something you've always had. So you certainly would have refined it ridiculously over time, but you probably haven't. Over you, that's probably why you focused on the doing because the therapeutic use of self peace probably was felt more natural potentially, and then you're like, well, I, yeah, I could do this with, you know, how is this doing the thing that we're wanting to work towards? I guess.
1: Thank you. You're very generous. (laughs) I feel like I'm doing nothing if I just show up and be me. Do you know what I mean? There's just a, and when I really allow it to unfold and when I'm truly, you know, following the child's lead and giving them some space, and, you know, they're going backwards through the tunnel for the fourth, fifth, sixth time, um, which happened recently, yeah, which I'm you laughing. know about. Yeah. Um, and then the next week, they still keep going feet first. And um, so I can, but it really feels like I've done nothing and wasted a bit of time, you know, that, that it took them 14 goes to I said, hey, do you know what? Some kids go through head first. and and they still put their feet first and try and get their head in as well. And so, yeah, but I I think that I don't, when I'm reflecting back, I didn't use my tricks. If I didn't use my tricks or I didn't pull out any big guns and, you know, it's a bit like, oh, we just hung out. I can play with kids like this any day and I don't need to go to any more courses because... I don't need the tricks. <laughs> I'm being facetious, but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh. yeah.
0: I think, I think though, um, and I, <laughs> what resonated with me, Tracy, and what you were talking about is just how abstract this can feel for somebody who's learning, who's trying to learn the journey of the therapy, like of being a therapist and how you, how we do this. Because I, I was like, Oh, it's the art and the science. It's that real you know, the art piece of not, of it not being a very distinctive one track that we just follow. Um, And that can feel really hard to um, learn because like you said, Michelle, it's like, well, what am I actually doing? And so this is the reason I love clinical reasoning because um, it's, it's only on reflection afterward that you look at the things that you did you think about the things that you did therapeutically in terms of not just the tricks, but when we talk about tricks, we're meaning like, I don't know, deep pressure and, Oh, we'll get them an inversion and maybe we'll get them pushing through their toes. And because we think about those things when they're relevant. um, And it's fantastic to have the knowledge to be able to pull those things out when you need them. And see them be effective, embedded in something bigger than just pushing through toes or just mm. deep pressure. Or so they're so helpful when you you know when you want to tug on those bits of knowledge that you have, and when and you can pull them in and put them in place for when you need it. Um, it's fantastic, but it's only on reflection of thinking about what you did and how you did it in the moment that you realize how much of impact you as the individual being with and allowing actually has the effect because you don't realize it until afterwards. It was like my little friend, I think it was two episodes ago, and we were talking about him and I was having all of these like, oh my gosh, all these cool things are happening. And I knew they were because I could feel it in my body, but I couldn't articulate it until we had started to talk about it. And so I think that's why I love mentoring as well, because the that's the first time I had to start thinking about this was when Colleen was like, yeah, you can go in with a plan, but you've got to be prepared to drop the plan. <laughs> Always be prepared to let go of the plan <laughs> because you want the plan because you're worried about what I'm what actually doing. But yeah, it's only with having someone help you go through that, though, that you feel like you can come to them with your questions and your thoughts and your wonderings, which is why I love this discussion.
2: I think it's so powerful and so brave. And um, I think it's worth championing that, you know, getting to clinical reasoning and finding reflective practice Um, is where those insights are going to often come from and where you do kind of realize that it is always the both of the doing and the being together. That's really what occupation is, right? And so upon reflection, I think you identify those pieces. So let's think about it in a reverse way. Many of us have learned therapeutic approaches, these therapeutic protocols and sort of rules of the road or particular activities that are real powerhouse activities that we might employ for a variety of different purposes. And we could pick any one of them, but I'm thinking about whether it be a particular sex swallow breathe activity that becomes very prototypically seen in lots of therapy clinics or or um, helping a child to activate their core in a certain way, or maybe helping a child to find and land their body through a therapeutic use of pressure or something like that. So we could list hundreds of these different things we do, we may do in a clinical situation. But when you learn those approaches, you know, it always feels a little bit artificial. Like I'm learning how to Use a ball to put per- percussion into a child's, you know, core in order to activate their abdominal muscles or their respiratory pattern or something like that. And it, and when you're first learning it, it almost feels mechanical and artificial. Mm-hmm. And you can't wait until you get to utilize those approaches with one or two or three kids and sink into the settled space of your authentic therapeutic use of self with that strategy. And suddenly then you own it in a different way and you never use it again in a really protocolized way because mm-hmm. you've now taken ownership of it in a way that infuses it into the relationship, into your you-ness and how you bring that to the weeness of the therapy setting And so in that, that's part of the journey. We have to learn the things to do, but the journey doesn't end with the, what do I do? It only begins there, right? And then it lands when you can settle it and embody it and really bring it into the relational space. So the relationship-based intervention doesn't preclude the doing, Infuses the doing into yes. being with. Does that, is that making sense? Yes.
0: It's resonating so strongly with me because, you know, you first learn something like the astronaut program or protocol. You don't know what it can afford you. So you do it really protocolized and you do it exactly how they teach it to you. And then you realize what it can offer you. And so then you, especially having access to conversations with Sheila, she, you know, she's always adapting and and embedding those things within what she can see as working rather than doing it in a protocolized way but you have to teach it you have to teach it so to teach it you have to make it really stepwise because you don't know what you're doing when you don't when you haven't done it before and so it's just about understanding the underlying principles why would i choose to do that protocol in the first place And if I understand the mechanisms of what I'm trying to get out of the protocol, then I can let go of the protocoliness and I can see the opportunity to embed it in the flavor of what's juicy and fun to the child. But it's really hard to explain that or to reassure somebody who's going in unsure about what to do in their session that it's like, well, follow the child's lead. That's so... Abstract. Do you like I need a bit more concreteness than follow the child's lead. Yes. I guess also
1: um the other side, the opposite side, is follow the therapist's lead and where we do have a real plan and I've done all we've done the trainings um from the some of those protocols and where I haven't been able to find ways to help the child engage in a protocol even when I add some flavors to it they haven't wanted it I've dropped the protocol because I couldn't make it fit for that child in a in a way they were welcoming and engaging and wanting to be in it so the protocol gets dropped I guess there's this tension for me around am I missing changing that part of the brain that knee or sensory system or whatever um, by not doing that Protocol, and I guess for people like me that kind of feel like, oh, I've got to, you know, refine that piece posturally or breathwise. I wonder, Trace, to help me trust in the neurology of it. I know that when. When I've been able to get um, work with a child, and we we are really attuned and in flow, and they readily accept, I guess, or engage with fully an adapted version of a protocol, that it feels good. That it's a bit of like a win-win. That I've got, I've maintained the relationship at the very least, but we've got we've had a shared experience of an activity that happened to be a little protocolly. So, but how does being in a in attunement and connected help or why is that necessary for me to achieve a result I guess through the protocol rather rather
0: than just the protocol rather than just the protocol
1: because if I go through a bit more of a behavioral approach where it's like First do that and then this. So do the – I don't want to name a protocol. Do this particular protocol and then we can do the juicy – Well, let's just say you do a bubble mountain. So it's like, okay, you're – You do the bubble mountain and then we can play your jumping off the loft game or, you know, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Can I still impact the brain in the way that I want to if I do that kind of negotiation? rather than when I'm juicy and in flow and it just kind of happens a little bit more connected. Well, let's just say that the aim of the bubble mountain was to get the extended
0: breath and to have a deeper exhale and to pull them into a
2: regulated regulated state
0: state. or just to maybe have access to their core. And then whereas if you hadn't done the bubble mountain on purpose as more of a protocol stepwise thing that you wanted to do in your session and you just met the child and was meeting them where they're at, And you didn't see the breath? Could you? Is that that's the kind of the question? Am I still going to get the similar outcome of maybe getting the core activated, maybe getting the diaphragm to let go a little bit, or maybe getting them a little more regulated? I don't know. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I I love how you guys think, and I love how we dissect this together. I just had to say that. So, (laughs) um, so a couple of things in the relationship-based intervention approaches that are really the core of what we are striving for here. There is this attunement piece that's really guiding you in following where is this child at right now. So if you know, you know, the child coming in tends to come in pretty dysregulated and often that involves dysregulation even of basic functions like breath. You probably are going to be prepared to have a set of activities that might allow for you to address that in a particular way. But then when the child shows up that day, you're going to be with them and see where are they at today. So on a particular day, one activity may lend itself better to where the child's at than another day. So that level of preparedness and and availability of options is something that we all do and should prepare for. We shouldn't just show up in the absence of, right? But it's attuning to where is this child today and following their lead. What you're doing there is you're noticing what is going to allow you to be with me right now to for us to go on this journey of this hour together. And you're really tuning into their physiology. You're turning into their sensory and affective and motor cues. You're paying attention to the sparkle in their eye, the glimmer that is drawing them, the things that are you know, their state, their arousal state, what's available, what's not available, what are they looking for, what are they seeking out, what are they avoiding. So all of those basic things are things that we're kind of assessing on a moment-to-moment basis, and we're, we're tuning into it so that we can see where are the opportunities here for you to find the next level of adaptation. Because really, it's less about the doing of a particular task or activity or goal, but it's more about what is the level of adaptation that we're going to get to today. And that's so fun and interesting. And so that's what you're really tuning into. I think in that, this the neuroscience research now would tell us that if we're doing that in a shared together, connected way, the progress of adaptation is far deeper and richer and sustaining of the nervous system's capacity differently than if I just teach you how to blow the bubbles. So there is a difference in the essential neuroplasticity if it's based in true connection and true meaning. It really does unfold differently and impact the nervous system differently than rote training would. Those are really different qualities of therapeutic approach and there is really a deep science that tells us that that more relationship-based approach is richer. Yeah.
1: Because we're being a regulator, because we're regulating and matching where they're at and that that allows because it allows them to stay in that optimum level of arousal which is the stabilizer that will allow them to move on to that next level of adaptation so we are sharing that we're holding that for them and not allowing them to slip too far up or too far down so they've got more capacity I guess to then Do the doing, do the adapting. But
0: you also said that you drop the protocol as soon as you realize it's not the right match, which is exactly Mm. what Tracy's saying. You come in with a plan and a thought about what things might be useful, potentially given what you already know about the child that's coming Mm. in and you have them there and you have them ready. But as soon as you know or notice that that's not having the effect that you're after, you adapt and you change it and you
1: and you know I guess with the bubble mountain idea that um you see the child a little dysregulated their eyes are flitting around they're not necessarily on me yet but they're eager to get in the room I'm gonna go for big roars and maybe jumps or I don't know what I'm gonna do but when Tracy was talking about that was like bubble mountain you are (laughs) yeah you're gonna get on the loft and we're gonna do you know extended Exhale and then a big drop down and then I might squish you on the mat as you resist you to climb up the ramp again. Um blah blah blah. So I think I'm doing that, but it just um I think I feel less effective because I didn't do the things (laughs) the bits that I you know, the protocols. Yeah. I think we all have that.
2: Yeah, it's totally true. But it's also I think it's really worth punctuating this point here and a couple of things. One is that The basis of connection and safety Mm. allow your nervous system to move into adaptation. Mm. So that window of adaptation is available to you and you can grow your capacities when you're in that window of adaptation. So the foundation of that is really this felt sense Mm. of safety and a felt sense Mm. of connection. But it's both pieces that the adaptation itself, bumping into your edges, finding your power, finding your agency, finding your joy, finding curiosity. All of those things are real things, but they're enhanced essentially in the context of you and me. Dan Siegel calls that the we space, right? (laughs) The me and you. It's the we. It's. It's additive, and what the contemporary neuroscience tells us is really that the we state, the the neural circuit, just the raw neural circuits of kind of we can perceive and integrate and act, but all of that is enhanced necessarily by the we, by the connection So when we're in relationship and in connection, the neural circuits actually hum and vibrate and work in a better, richer way. And that's what they need to get to the highest level of adaptation. So the relationship isn't Mm. secondary. It's necessary.
0: So all of this is really making me think, how did I personally start to move from this activity-based doing when I first started treating, um, because you have to start somewhere and you start often by imitating what other people are doing and just kind of doing it and not really understanding exactly why, but it seems to be helpful, to more of this attuned pulling knowledge and approaches into moments with children as I needed them, I guess it's just super strongly reinforcing um, how lucky I've been in having fantastic mentors and the ability to fine-tune my clinical reasoning because that's the piece that has allowed me to have a really robust reflective practice and I'm driven towards understanding and it's in the reflection that I've been able to find a greater capacity to understand what is going on and I want the neurology and I want all of that to lay on top of what is going on. And so that's kind of been such a fun thing for me to have and I, I, I know the spirit model has also been amazing for me in that way, Tracy, because there is such depth to this. And it can feel overwhelming, but I wonder if we could just even, if you could just even talk a little bit about how you've come to the model or just the steps that drew you to that and how you, I know that's like a 30 hour discussion probably, but just some of the pieces that might be helpful for people, um, even just to take away to start to think about it. And you don't even need the model per se or the training in the model to think about these things that are kind of central to what we're discussing.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking so much today about this vitality affect in a way. It's this felt experience mm. of who we are and and how we establish this grounded, embodied sense of I'm here for you, I see your journey, I'm going to walk this with you and we're going to we're going to understand each other and move forward and and in that there are a lot of words that we're using there that relate back to the core elements that Uh, were drawn to develop the spirit model. So those are the sensory and affective and motor elements. So in the work that Dr. Stanley Greenspan has done around the developing of the DIR model, the developmental individual differences relationship-based approach model, within his work, he talked about how when people were struggling with the development of their capacities, especially social-emotional capacities, that very often there was some difficulty with sensory or affective or motor processing that was kind of at the core of why some of that developmental unfolding wasn't happening. And so in the study of of that model that I've spent a lot of years learning and, and reading and trying to understand, um, I had a chance to treat a couple of kids uh, with Dr. Greenspan, and that was really eye-opening. And just hearing him talk about sensory and affective and motor processing. Um, what I realized was that in our domain, we actually have a pretty deep understanding of sensory and motor processing that allowed us to enrich that understanding. But the affective piece that's kind of in the middle of that is something that I felt like from my OT tradition, I didn't have quite as much depth of knowing and really had to seek it Mm -hmm. out. Um, And then in the basic neuroscience There's this kind of idea of a vitality affect or sometimes what people talk about as a bias, right? There's a valence or a tipping point Mm -hmm. or a biasing function that happens in the nervous system. And it happens really at a very basic chemical level, but then it happens in the neural circuits. And it's really particularly active in the affective processes, And so the valence-based affective system, the A system, is often thought about as this big driver of the way that we function as humans. I've heard Brene Brown recently talk about how, you know, it Mm. never, it doesn't matter ever um, what's happening in your world, your emotions are always in the driver's seat And so in some ways, affect and that driver's seat of the valence is really, really foundational for us to understand and to get our heads around. So in the spirit model, what happened was I just spent a lot of time thinking about the basic processing of sensation and affective biasing and motor processing and started to realize that there were these relatively lower and higher routes of each of those that were contributing to the way that our capacities unfold, and that it gave us a convention to really start to be able to figure out the whys of what's going on for a person, and that that leads us to the what. So for clinical reasoning, if we can get to the why the what becomes far more evident. And I think that that releases Mm -hmm. us to be fully present and available and to not get so caught up in the doing and allow us to be with through the lens of why. So the SAM function is just one way of tackling that in a way that's pretty systematic so that we can get to the why and when we get to the why then we get to all of the real essence of what the therapeutic process mm-hmm. is
0: about i was thinking about that affective system neurologically and just people even just hearing the word affect it's not always well in our work definitely to me it wasn't always obvious what even that was like i had to really go and learn about that because i was like i don't even really understand what that is and In the most basic, basic way now, I'm like that system, that emotional affective system at the very basic level is am I safe or am I not? And at the very highest level feels like what am I interested in and what am I drawn to and what gets me going? And that becomes so essential to my practice because you were talking about Tracy, you know, if you're safe and you're connected, which is that sort of base of our affective neurology and emotional processing, then it allows me into the adaptive response allows me to have adaptive responses. allows the possibility of that. So that's like always just an overarching principle that Michelle Mm -hmm, and I have going into session. And then at the top of that is what am I interested in? And that is like, to me, that's where I'm like oh I want to figure out what's interesting to you today and where are you drawn to today and where are you getting a little buzz today and can I embed my why and that a system is the kind of the piece and they always talk about it being the glue between the sensory system and the motor system I just think we as OTs didn't always maybe we did but I didn't always think about the A because I didn't really know about it as much. I knew more about the others and less about that one, but it's actually so essential and crucial. It's, that's why it's right in the middle
1: <laughs> to me. I'm going to bold mine. I think <laughs> I've thought he was a lightweight. I kind of did and didn't. Therap- you know, personally, no, That, you know, in my life, no, relationships are everything. But, um, yeah, in the clinic, somehow I thought he was a little cousin. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to bold. I've got a vision of SAM as well in Lowercase and capitals, but i 'm um, going to make my A just a little brighter and a little bolder just to reinforce my where I am right now yeah to allow that to shine through in um, in my practice a little more that I, that that all the protocols are of no more benefit than than the a's and maybe that's something that we can dive more into
0: in the next episodes around that a Processing and maybe the interpersonal neurobiology that goes into the reasons why that is so important. And it's not, so maybe we can hopefully make it a little less abstract for people so that they can really, because that's, you really want to see that that's the value and refine the way you use it, I guess. Yeah,
2: I love that. And I think, you know, taking the time today to just kind of think about our own thinking and our own process and our own clinical reasoning, our own use of self and, and how SAM kind of um, informs that is such a cool thing. And then we can explore through cases, I think, again, you know, how does all of what we're talking about come together then in our clinical reasoning as we identify what's happening in those various functions those neural capacities Mm. that are always what we're kind of scratching at and moving forward with
0: this podcast is brought to you by seed pediatric services and developmental fx For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com or catch us on our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us for this episode. Take care and we'll see you next time.